Vietnam Academy of Magic. This is Radio First Turner, operating on Dave Rabbit's own frequency at 69 megacycles on your FM dial. The purpose of this program is to bring vital news, information, and hard acid rock music to the first turners and non-reinitiates in the Republic of Vietnam. Radio First Turner operates under no Air Force regulations or manuals. In the event of a bicycle upgrade, this program will automatically self-destruct. understand that I have light feeling. I thought it was good. When I did go in the military, I went in there gun-ho. In basic training, you have this 500 points that you score. I scored like 501 or something. <laughs> it was really, you know, ready. I was certain that every male member of my family had their war, that there would be a war for me, and I would go off and be a hero and fight the good fight for this country. I've tried to spend my whole life having people live a better life and basically feel better. That's what nurses do, right? You know, it took us almost three weeks across the Pacific, and there wasn't too much to do on a troop ship, so we'd sit up on the deck at night and have wraps. And a lot of times it would get to whether we were, what we were going to, whether it was right or wrong. And we'd go back and forth, back and forth, and uh, we'd always end up concluding, well, let's hope we're doing the right thing because that's where we're going. In the 1960s, the United States government began sending combat troops to South Vietnam. I was really proud of what I thought I was doing. The problem I had was realizing that what I was doing was not good. I was doing it right, but I wasn't doing right. I was asked to train Green Beret people, special forces men. Why were they training these guys to, in dermatology? Well, they were training them. Uh, to do dermatology in Vietnam because they knew that if they were able to offer a few simple remedies and help cure a few children of some simple bacterial infections, that that would uh, ingratiate themselves to the Vietnamese community. And, you know, you remember the phrase, the winning the hearts and minds of the people. So this was, this was how you were going to win the hearts and minds of the people. And while they were offering the Band-Aids of uh, helping to cure a few cases of impetigo, uh, they were bombing the hell out of the villages. I was out on a patrol uh, near Hipwa, and uh, uh, we took a couple of prisoners. I whether they were combatants or not, who knows. The patrol was led by Americans, but there were Vietnamese Arvin there, and uh, they returned over to Arvin. And Arvin used the old-fashioned methods of interrogation, force, torture. That was pretty common practice. I tell you, as bad as, the, as, bad as that treatment was, the cynicism that attached to it was the part that was really sickening, I thought. And that's about everything I've been taught, everything I've learned, everything I grew up with. This is just not the way you treat human beings. And it's all done for the, the good of the cause, I guess. 
I got out of the military in 1966. I got out because of the things I saw, the things I was doing, and the th reasons that we were given for doing them. It was a personal protest. It was just me getting out of the service. I, there was no movement to join. I found the war in Vietnam uh, more and more repulsive, and I felt that I just couldn't be a part of it. Eventually, I uh, said, look, I'm not training you guys anymore. I don't agree with what you're doing. I think it's immoral. I think it's medically unethical. And I just stopped, threw them out of the clinic. Uh, uh, it took a few weeks for the Army to catch up with that. Uh, and when they did, they invited me into the commanding officer's office and said, look, what are you doing here? And I told them exactly what I was doing. I said, I'm not training them. And they said, well, you know, you, you, you should know the consequences of that. And I said, I'm perfectly aware of the consequences of it. I'm not training them. At that point, uh, it was obvious that I was going to be court-martialed. A few days later, I got the court-martial notice. Howard Levy spent three years in prison. Along with him, three GIs at Fort Hood who refused orders to Vietnam and received five years hard labor and a dishonorable discharge. Army Lieutenant Henry Howe, who carried a sign at a demonstration reading, N. Johnson's fascist aggression in Vietnam, was sentenced to two years. And two Marines, William Harvey and George Daniel, received six to ten year sentences for organizing a meeting about whether black people should fight in Vietnam. And on March 3rd, 1966, former Green Beret Donald Duncan was the featured speaker at an anti-war meeting at the town hall in Manhattan. I just wanted to do what I knew about it and let, let people then judge for themselves. I think the most startling thing to me occurred, however, as the court-martial began. What would happen was we would walk from the parking lot to the uh, building where the court-martial was being held. And it was the most remarkable thing when hundreds, hundreds of GIs would hang out of windows, out of the barracks, and give me the V sign or give me the clenched fist. This was mind-boggling to me. This was a revelation. And at that point, it really became crystal clear to me that something had changed here and that something very, very important was happening. How many people in the army would you think feel the same way perhaps as you do are against the war? I wouldn't mention, I really don't know how many, but I know how many I met, and that was a majority of the men that I met in the service were opposed. Sanctuary in a church and chained ourselves to ministers. 
we essentially called the press and said to them, we're not going to Vietnam. We're refusing our orders. And in fact, we're resigning from the military to come and get us. The fact that it took them three days to decide how to deal with this tactically, that was great. They had nothing to lose. And it had no idea what was going to come. And that's a free place. It's a really free place, you know? You, you, <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen, you know where you're going, but you know what you're doing. And that was my introduction to the uh, San Francisco Presidio Stockade. fluctuated usually upwards it was built I think and could hold like maybe 60 and there were uh, sometimes double that in there uh, overcrowded toilets backed up uh, food was short guards were mean that was wasn't any fun with the nine for peace held in military prisons Soldiers throughout the Bay Area began planning for the first anti-war demonstration in the country organized by GIs and veterans. I was an, a member of the Medical Committee for Human Rights. We got together a number of times and talked about how we were going to organize active duty GIs to go to the peace demonstration. And then I remember also hearing about the B-52 bombers that were dropping leaflets on Vietnam, urging the Vietnamese to defect. And I thought, well, if they can do it overseas, then we can hire a small private plane, load it up with leaflets, and drop the leaflets on military bases in the San Francisco Bay Area. Thousands and thousands of leaflets. At one point, I know we were a little concerned about getting shot down, but nothing happened. Evidently, they landed pretty accurately. That's what they testified at the court-martial. And on my way driving into the demonstration, I decided I was going to wear my naval uniform. My opinion was fairly straightforward. It was if Westmoreland could wear his uniform, being for the war and talking in front of Congress, then as an active duty person, I certainly had the same rights that he did. And I could wear my uniform protesting the United States involvement in Vietnam. Susan Schnall was court-martialed for making a political statement while in uniform. And following the GI and Veterans March for Peace, four AWOL GIs turned themselves in to the Presidio Army Stockade, which was about to reach a breaking point. The moment of my epiphany, or the, you know, the thing that came to me was working in a hospital, in the military hospital up at Fort Lewis, in a neurology floor. and. Uh, it was all head and neck injuries, guys who were so paralyzed that they couldn't turn the page of a book and they couldn't even take a poop by themselves and they couldn't kill themselves. And every day we'd come in as the medics to take care of them and they would beg us every day to kill them because they couldn't kill themselves. And it was such a horror. It caused me to think to myself, because I, was, I was, grew up in a military family. My grandfather was a career officer and my father was a career officer and I had no reason at all going into the military to think there was anything wrong with the Vietnam War or anything wrong with, the, with America or the beautiful. And then there I was, faced with this situation where guys every day were asking me to kill them. And it was so horrible, I had to 
at a certain point, I just made a vow to myself that, that, that I wouldn't ever put somebody else into the hospital in those circumstances, that I wouldn't be the guy that squeezed a trigger that caused some human being to be in that dreadful situation. The other thing that bothered me was that those guys that could talk, the ones that would beg you to kill them, the ones that couldn't turn the page of the book, that couldn't wiggle anything from their chin down, and none of them felt like they had made their sacrifice for a good reason. They all told stories of, you know, of brutalizing the Vietnamese people, of being the thugs. And not a single one of them felt like his sacrifice was, was, was for a good cause. For 19-year-old Private Michael Bunch, life in the Army had been little more than a series of AWOL violations. His last stop was here, the Presidio Stockade, where he was fatally shot last Friday while trying to escape from a work detail. So um, I'd been assigned kind of by the movement people to go into the stockade and find out what was going on because they had, they had shot this prisoner and killed him. But the guard shot him and killed him, you know, point blank. And his only crime was uh, not wanting to be there and um, going AWOL. And cut, he was cut down at a real young age and uh, for no good reason. Not unlike a lot of his brothers uh, in Vietnam, you know. Uh, so... Um, <clears throat> So we reacted uh, viscerally and uh, with anger and disgust and outrage. And we tore that jail apart. Uh, we ripped the wires out of the walls, ripped the squawk box off the wall. And then things started to calm down because we started to plan. We came to a decision that the best thing we could do was to have some kind of a demonstration. And it was at the roll call formation, we had a signal, and that was when we were supposed to break ranks, and we did, and then we walked over here and sat down. At a certain point, Commandant came out and read us uh, the, the Mutiny Act, and we just kept singing louder and you know, kind of linked arms and sing and sing. We were scared, man. I'll tell you, we were really scared. But we had them right where we want them. They were finally listening to us, man. That's the first time I can ever remember anybody listening to us while I was in the military. The commanding general of the 6th Army, which was the jurisdiction, and he said that they thought that the revolution was about to start and that they really had to set an example, you know, come down hard, and we were the guys that they decided to do that with. And they did. I mean, we, you know, we were on trial for our life. You know, I kind of came in as an AWOL, and, uh, you know, within two days of hitting the stockade, I was, uh, you know, I was facing the death sentence <laughs> for saying that we shall overcome. Initially sentenced to 16 years for mutiny, the Presidio 27 spent up to two years in federal prison and facing decades in jail for both the Nine for Peace and Presidio sit-down, Keith Mather escaped from the Presidio stockade and made his way to Canada, where he spent the next 18 years living in exile. But in the summer of 68, as thousands of supporters protested the jailing at the Presidio 27, the GI movement had arrived. My background is Puerto Rican. I was born in New York City. When I was 17 years old, I entered the United States Military Academy at West Point. I graduated with honors, and the Army sent me to graduate school at Harvard University to the Kennedy School of Government. I was there for a year and a half, at which point I wrote to the Army and said that I would refuse to serve in the Vietnam War. I came to believe it was a war of aggression by the United States against the Vietnamese. It was really a troubling decision. 
because I knew that um, my career would be over. And I didn't know what the future would bring. At the time, the press said that I was the first West Point graduate to refuse to serve in a war in the history of West Point. I remember calling my parents, and they were in tears. I mean, just totally in tears, uh, uh, thinking that I would end up in prison uh, instead of getting a master's degree from Harvard. But I told them, I remember in that conversation, I said, you always taught me to do what's just, to do uh, what is right. And uh, I really felt that I was doing the right thing. And I believe that to this day, 34 years later. I know I did the right thing. I was wounded three times while I was out in the bush. Third time I was wounded was on December 20th, 67. And we got overrun by North Vietnamese regulars. They started like a human wave attack. And the guy came up behind our hole and stuck his rifle in the hole. And I saw the front sight of an AK-47 and a muzzle flash. And I had my M16 pointed up, and I started pull, pulled my trigger when I saw the AK sight. And the bullet hit me in the knee, and I blacked out. I came to a few minutes later, and the gun was jammed, and my knee was shattered. After the fighting ended, and the sun came up, and they carried me over to this guy who had shot me. And he was sitting up against a tree stump, and he was dead. He had three bullet holes up his chest, and he had his AK laying across his lap. And the sergeant said, here's this gook you killed. You did a good job. And I seen this guy, and he was about my age. And, and I started thinking, you know, why is he dead and I'm alive? It was just a matter of pure luck. Then I started thinking, well, I wonder if he had a girlfriend and if his, how his mother's going to find out and things like that. This is when you just went through an experience of that nature, and you find out that it's all lies and that they're just lying to the American people. And your silence means that you're part of keeping that lie going. I couldn't stop. I mean, I couldn't be silent. You know, I felt I had a responsibility to my friends and to the country in general and to the Vietnamese. The last guy who I shot, and I, I'm, I don't consider he was the first guy I shot, but it was the first guy I shot where I was shooting it out barrel to barrel with him and looked him in the face afterwards. And I felt a certain amount of responsibility to him to make that his life, if his, his death not be in vain, meant that I had to try and advocate for uh, the justness that he was fighting for, because I believed he was fighting for his country. So I became involved in the movement. That's what happened with me. With more and more soldiers turning against the war, a handful of peace activists opened the first of what would become a network of dozens of anti-war GI coffee houses located in the towns that hover near military bases. The dusty Texas town of Killeen, just outside Fort Hood, which housed over 30,000 troops, became the home of a GI coffee house known as the Oleo Strut. Being in the Army, I can get over here and I can sit down and write poetry and I can sit here and listen and I can forget I'm in the army for about 15 minutes to an hour or something like this. We have three very simple rules here. Three very simple rules and that's all. One, we got no holding in the place. If you're holding, it's a bad place to be. The sign over there says the man is welcome. Always remember the man is welcome here. It's not so much that he's welcome, it's that he's just here. <laughs> <laughs> the name 
oleo strut came from a shock absorber on a helicopter. So that's what the oleo strut was. And it was a place where you go there and they sold sodas and they had a record player and all the latest rock records and underground papers and just hang out and rap. Fort Hood was both a combination of guys going to Vietnam and guys who'd been to Vietnam and came back. And as time went on, the guys who had been to Vietnam played a subversive role to the guys who were going. And they go out on ambushes. Like the one month period, we go out on ambushes and we kill over 50 people you know, in the early hours of the morning and uh, you start looking at bodies because they've got to get their body count. Who's there? Well, the majority were women and children. And what were they doing? What was their crime? They were carrying food. They were carrying food to their, you know, their friends up in the hills. For anyone, anyone who thinks he can duck out of it and hopefully be a Kirk typist and not have to see any of that, he's making a mistake because he's supporting the war. I remember probably one of our campaigns that was a pretty good effort was the Tyrell's boycott. Tyrell's was a jewelry store at a number of bases throughout the country. And they used to have these guys standing out on the sidewalk soliciting you. GIs would come into town and they say, hey, why don't you buy your mother a ring? Why don't you buy your girlfriend a ring? And particularly, they were trying to get the guys who were going to go to Vietnam. Better buy something for your mother. You might not get to see her again, something to remember you. They'd, they'd be out there hustling, and they knew all the different raps to pull on a lonely GI's heartstrings. And then they used to have this deal where if you bought the ring and you were killed in Vietnam, any payments were suspended. The ring was paid off at that point, and they put your name in the window on the Tyrell's Roll Call of Honor, which was outrageous because it was like... Oh, you owed us money and we got killed, so we're going to put your name in the window to get some other guy to do it. So we decided to start a boycott at the store in Colleen, and we began picket lines in front of the Tyrell's place. They arrested picketers at several times. We tried and maintain the picket lines. But what happened was the Tyrell's boycott started spreading to other bases around the country because word of our protest started spreading. There was GI activist groups all over the country by this point. Shelter Half Coffee House near Fort Lewis in Washington was declared off-limits by the military. And in Columbia, South Carolina, the staff of the UFO Coffee House was arrested and charged with maintaining a public nuisance. Night Riders shot into a movement center near Camp Pendleton Marine Base in California, seriously wounding one Marine. And in Mountain Home, Idaho, the covered wagon coffee house was firebombed and burned to the ground. In the little town of Muldraw, Kentucky, home of Fort Knox, a scene worthy of Franz Kafka emerged. Soldiers were mostly the driving force, and we were the supporters. And they did things like put up pictures of Che Guevara. They put up a one whole wall was an American flag painted upside down. The stars part of it was a toilet seat. And if you lifted the toilet seat up, um, there was Lyndon Johnson's picture. And when the police officer who came in to examine the place, saw that, he just hit the roof. 
I got sent to um, Fort Knox, Kentucky to protect the nation's gold supply. I got to Knox at a time when um, their coffee house was experiencing a lot of repression. I spent 13 days in this little jail. It still had a trap door from when they did lynchings from before the Civil War. There was a hook up on the wall. What they were trying to do was drive us out of town, but we weren't going away. They indicted six people for two offenses. One was maintaining a place visited by idle and evil-disposed people. We always thought idle and evil-disposed people, you mean like soldiers? The whole emphasis of the coffee house in giving us an off-base center to, to congregate and meet was a good thing, but in defending those centers to exist, it pulled us off the base, which is where we were effective and um, powerful. It put us in a coffee house. We were just like a, a bunch of other young people in a coffee house. Put us in a barracks with a stack of papers and half a dozen guys around us, and we were fucking Atlas. A new phenomenon has cropped up at several army bases these days, a so-called underground GI press, which consists largely of anti-war newspapers. Military authorities are clamping down hard on the papers. Recently, it was announced There was an underground newspaper laying on the bed, and it was called The Last Harass. They freaked out, man. They were freaking out. This is unauthorized material, and this is subversive material. You're not allowed to have any copies of this inside the barracks. You must turn this in immediately. That night, then, the paper then went around in the barracks. Everybody's reading it, two or three guys at a time sitting around in a, on a bed, around guys' beds and stuff like that, checking out this paper. What I liked about it was the fact that the officers hated it. To me, it was... It had to be good. It had to be good. It had to be something about this that was good. Typed, mimeographed, printed, the GI Underground Press exploded. Fort Knox, Kentucky, Fort Gordon, Georgia, Fort Lewis, Washington, Fort Benning, Georgia, Chinoot Air Force Base, Four-Year Bummer, Fort Dix, New Jersey, Fort Hood, Texas, Fatigue Press, it's published by a group of radical soldiers stationed at this army base. And we used to distribute it clandestinely on base. We'd go around and leave bunches of them in barracks. We'd go through barracks at night and leave them on footlockers and... If you were caught distributing literature on base, that was a uh, court-martial offense. Shortly after the first issue was published, the GI who founded the Fatigue Press, Gypsy Peterson, was pulled over by Fort Hood police. And they vacuumed out his car and claimed to found remnants of marijuana and arrested him for possession of marijuana in an attempt to suppress his movement. Following a two-day trial in a Texas court, Gypsy Peterson was sentenced to eight years in prison. Despite the military's best efforts, the underground press became the lifeblood of the GI movement as the Army's own recruiting slogan, Fun, Travel, and Adventure, turned into the popular GI expression, Fuck the Army. There must have been close to 300 anti-war newspapers written, produced, and published on bases all throughout the world. It was wherever there were GIs, American GIs in the world. Linking soldiers around the world, the GI press also inspired many outside the military. I grew up believing that if our flag was flying over a battlefield, that we were on the side of the angels. My father fought in the Second World War. He won awards and medals. And, you know, I grew up during the good wars. Here's this woman who steps out onto the world stage as a famous actress, comes from one of the ruling class families in Hollywood, and makes a political decision to change sides. She steps onto the side of the people, and particularly the Vietnamese people. She stands with the GIs, 
and she stands with the GI movement and she says, I'm going to stand with this, I'm going to give vent, I'm going to help support it and build it and, you know, et cetera, like that, and the FTA show. Mr. President, there's a terrible demonstration going on outside. Oh, there's always a demonstration going on outside, Pat. Yeah, but Richard, this one is completely out of control. Well, what are they asking for this time? Free Angela Davis and all political prisoners out of Vietnam now and draft all government officials. Well, uh, we have people to take care of that. They'll do their job, you do your job, and I'll do my job. Well, Richard, you don't understand. They're storming the White House. Oh, in that case, I better call out the 3rd Marines. You can't, Richard. Why not? It is the 3rd Marines. For years, pro-war comedian Bob Hope had toured Vietnam entertaining American troops. But soon the cheers turned to jeers, and a new kind of entertainment emerged. Howard Levy, himself a, a celebrity within the GI movement, he met with Donald Sutherland and me, and he said, what if we put together an anti-war show that's you know, the opposite side of the coin from the from the Bob Hope show. I went down to that base, they took one look at my face and read out an order to Barbie. I said, Foxtrot, Tango, Alpha. Free the Army. <laughs> F the Army. We always said, free the Army. <laughs> or fun travel and adventure. But it really meant the Army. So we said, Foxtrot, Tango, Alpha. Here was a way that I could combine my profession, my acting, with my <coughs> desire to end the war. It just seemed like a perfect fit. The show, the show that we bring to these bases, is not trying to tell the people on the bases anything that they don't know. We are coming in response to what is probably the most powerful movement going on in this country. The movement of the men inside the military and women who are beginning to understand how they're being used and what the nature of American foreign policy is. And we come there because they have asked us to. We come there because for the last year we have read in the newspapers from Vietnam, from, from West Germany, from Okinawa, from the Philippines, from Japan. What we want is entertainment. We want people who speak to how we feel. And the majority of us don't know why we're going over there. We don't know why we're being shot up. We don't know why our buddies are being killed. We don't know why we're killing those people. If it had been another time and place and another war, I might have actually been a very good soldier because there's part of the military life that I really liked. This replaced my dog tags. This little teardrop peace sign became my official dog tag for myself. I went through my whole tour in Vietnam without a set of dog tags. Anything but thinking about where you were. When you started thinking about where you were, that's when you started getting in trouble. And that's when I started getting in trouble. Because then I started, you know, started really seeing <coughs> started seeing stuff like I'm seeing right now. It's, it's um, the way we judged our success was through body count. And most of the time, even though I was part of the um, command structure, being a 
first a squad leader, then a platoon sergeant. Um, most of the time, it's supposed to be my responsibility to, um, you know, do things like check the bodies, and but um, I never wanted to do that. That's that's not what I wanted to understand that I was doing. I was brought into the um, company office and I was told by a major that I would be brought up on charges of leading and conspiring to mutiny against the United States government because there were three of us who were refusing to go on combat operations and that I would be facing a 20 to life sentence. And so I just, I walked out of there in shock, thinking, well, I'm going to jail for a long time. I didn't know there was a GI movement. I just had this strong moral sense of, of something not being right. And then they sent me to see the, quote, company shrink. He said, well, what are you really concerned about? And I said, you know, I don't care about prison time. He said, I just want to have some connection with my home. I didn't want to be ostracized from American culture and society. And he said, well, let me show you something. And he reached into, the, into some drawer that he had, and he pulled out this New York Times newspaper, and there's a full-page ad that had all these signatures of all these people who were opposed to the war. It was a full-page advertisement signed by 1,400 active-duty soldiers denouncing the war and supporting the November 15th demonstration, the November 15th moratorium demonstration. And the discussion started going to say, oh, man, why don't we do something? On this day, November 15th, we're all going to wear these black armbands mm -hmm. as, as a form of a symbolic solidarity with the protests in the United States. We were up all night long just talking about this, and I was so I couldn't sleep. There was no way I was still so excited by this point. So we go out of the morning formation. All our guys had black shoestrings on. We get over to the combat engineers now, though. There was a different story. The company commander had grabbed, had some guy by the by the by the collar, and had his 45 pistol up to his head. Damn. You could vaguely hear him threatening this guy <coughs> to summarily execute him on the spot because he's inciting a mutiny. I've seen Charlie, Luke the Goof, whatever you want to call him, NVA. Right there laying down as I walked by. I looked at him, he looked at me. He was going by my business. This man didn't do me nothing. He didn't hurt me in no type of way. He hurt none of my black people, none of my families. So why should I shoot him? I feel all black men should be exempt from all military duty anyway. Guys were coming from all over the country, so you're getting people coming in with different information about black power struggle at that time, and you know black unity, and you know feeling real good about yourself. And you began to really question what you were doing in Vietnam. I remember one day uh, the first sergeant was talking about gooks. Show you how naive I was. I didn't know no gook was a racial slur. I didn't really understand that. You know, one day he was talking about gooks, and I remember a light went off in my head, and I said, wow, a gook is the same thing as a nigga.
my whole tour in Vietnam, you know, when you met a black soldier, you know, you, he had a dap, you had a special handshake. You could even, you got to the point where you could even tell what part of the uh, the country he was from because everybody had their distinctive the dap or handshake. And you definitely could tell if he wasn't in your company because everybody, you know, everybody had their little nuance. This is the greeting. This is the greeting on the brother, on my brother. I'm glad to see him. I don't, I don't have to know his name. Just the fact that he's black is good. situation a group of inmates got together and we decided that uh, we were going to escape from this place and, uh, what happened was is that the result was a long been uh, rebellion where a lot of uh, GIs um, costed guards and uh, they burnt down the, the jail and there was just mayhem I'm a survivor so uh, I was going to survive no matter what something that reminds you of uh, the things that you've done in Vietnam, the things that you've seen. Then you actually see what I saw, what was going on in the States. Dudes are running down the streets and wearing the same kind of uniform that I got. They're in Memphis. They're, 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 they're beating up on people Wait a minute, we, we, we're over here beating up on people over here, and, and you're beating up on black people. Dogs are running everywhere, tanks are on the streets. In the summer of 1968, Army and National Guard troops were sent into American cities as thousands of black people rioted following the assassination of Martin Luther King. That spring, troops were used against anti-war demonstrators at the Pentagon. Then in August, soldiers at Fort Hood were told they would be sent to Chicago, where anti-war demonstrations were planned for the Democratic Party's national convention. 
hey, we just come back from fighting the Vietnamese, now they want us to fight the Americans. The night before the troops were supposed to leave, there was a meeting of black GIs that gathered up in a parking lot in the 1st Armored Division section, and they were out there all night in the parking lot talking. You know, they were having like a rap session and rally, why they were opposed to going to Chicago. We were making it clear that it was a genocidal thing that was going to go on, and how can I go and commit genocide on my people, shoot my people? There were hundreds of black GIs out in this parade field. Brothers came up and really started pouring it on then about, you know, discrimination and unfair treatment, not getting the rank you needed, and about what was happening with the war. As the meeting stretched into the night, Fort Hood's commanding general showed up to talk to the GIs. He said, I'm just a two-star general. Let me go and talk to my boss, and I have an answer for you in the morning. So, you know, we just relaxed, you know, went to sleep. All of a sudden, crack upside the head. Crack me upside the head. What the hell? You know, what the hell going on? MPs all around us, man. They came at us with bayonets. I got cut. You know, I got hit right here with a bayonet. And then every every now and then, you open this formation up, and a group of MPs come in and grab a brother and take him back in the back and beat the shit out of him. You hear him screaming in the back. And they were court-martialed, brought up on various court-martial charges, but it scared the hell out of the military. Then they went around and went through the roster of all the units who were supposed to go and took off who they considered to be, quote, subversives. So a number of people, myself included, were not sent to Chicago. In one of the most infamous events of the 1960s, Chicago police brutally attacked the demonstrators in front of the Democratic Convention. Although the Army had sent a contingent of riot-controlled troops to Chicago from Fort Hood, they kept them off the streets. It was no longer certain which side the GIs were on. The military had a problem on its hands, and it was about to go from bad to worse. We were in uh, the breakfast line, I believe. It was a long line. All of a sudden, we see this commotion kind of start at the beginning of the line and then start to come up towards us. And we could see people, like, one guy would turn to the guy behind them and they'd, there'd be this excited conversation, and then that guy would turn to the guy behind him. And finally, the guy in front of me got the news, and he turns around and he says to me, they're killing women and children in Vietnam. I said, who's killing women and children? The Viet Cong? And he said, no, we are. March 16, 1968, the soldiers of Charlie Company, 11th Brigade, Americal Division, entered the village of My Lai. 24 hours later, over 500 villagers, men, women, children, lay dead, brutally and wantonly murdered in cold blood. Around the world, the My Lai Massacre would become the touchstone event of the Vietnam War. For over a year, the American military covered up the My Lai Massacre, claiming only enemy soldiers were killed. And when the truth was finally brought to light by journalists, the highest-ranking officer tried and convicted was William Calley, a lieutenant. In a cramped Detroit hotel, a new organization... Vietnam Veterans Against the War held an unprecedented investigation that exposed a much deeper truth. 
I think the Winter Soldier investigation was to try to point out it wasn't really in defense of Cali, but it was uh, going after the notion that the policies of the U.S. military created things like My Lai, okay? That it was a policy. It was both a written and an unwritten policy. And the truth has to be told. You can't duck away from the truth. You can't lie and put up a smoke screen and say, oh, this is a, the words they used back then, an isolated instance of aberrant behavior. You aren't just coming home saying I'm against the war. You're saying this is what we did. This is how we did it. This was a crime. This was wrong. Helped people to really cross the bridge and to see us in a way that I think the anti-war movement had not seen GIs before. America went through, went through a choke, okay, because they didn't want to believe that these things occurred in the name of the American people, supposedly supporting freedom and liberation and democracy throughout the world. And there was this terrible slaughter this terrible, inane slaughter. So I think the question was, why are they going after Cali, where Cali was doing precisely what we were all told to do when we were in Vietnam, essentially, okay? Which is kill them all and sort it out later. In Quang Tri City, I had a friend who was, a, he was an advisor with an Arvin group, and one time he asked me would I like to accompany him into a village that I was familiar with to see how they act. So I went with him and, uh, they didn't find any enemy, but they found a woman with bandages. So she was questioned with about, she was questioned by six Arvins, and the way they questioned her was since she had bandages, uh, they, sh they shot her. She was hit about 20 times. So after she was questioned, uh, of course, dead, uh, this guy came over who was, and knowing him, uh, he was a former major. He was in the service for 20 years, and he, he got hungry again and came back over working with uh, USAID, Aid International Development. And uh, he uh, went over there and ripped her clothes off and took a knife and cut from her vagina all the way up, well, just about up to her breast and pulled her organs out completely out of her cavity and threw them out. And then he stopped and knelt over and uh, commenced to peel every bit of skin off her body and left her there as a, as a sign for something or other. And so I gave other testimony. Oh, one about the rabbit lesson, which I thought was very important, and I still think it is. And that was at the end of staging battalion at the Camp Pendleton base uh, in California for Marines before you went to Vietnam. Where the staff NCO comes out, and he has a rabbit, and he's talking to you about escape and evasion and survival in the jungle, and he has this rabbit, and then after, in a couple of seconds, he, well, everyone just about falls in love with it. Not falls in love with it, but, uh, you know, they're humane there. He cracks in the neck, skins it, disembowels it just like I sit, testified that this happened to a woman. Uh, he does this to a rabbit and then they throw the guts out in the audience. And takes the skin of the rabbit and turns it inside out and makes, makes a little booty for his foot and says you might have to do this in case your helicopter crashes in Vietnam or you're separated from your unit. And I thought the subtext of that little lesson was to, to, to completely brutalize people. You can get anything out of that you want, but that's your last lesson you catch in the United States before you leave for Vietnam. And I went and listened to the three days of testimony and absolutely came away from it emotionally drained and floored by it. I never grasped, even up to that point, how powerful was the genocidal plans and strategy of the U.S. towards the Vietnamese people. On every level, um, you know, whether it was Agent Orange and the, and the Dow Chemical reconfiguring the napalm because the napalm wasn't sticking to the Vietnamese skin enough. I mean, that was, you know, 
All of this just added to the overwhelming sense of the criminality in the United States. Claiming to have a secret plan to end the war, Richard Nixon had been elected president in 1968. But in 1970, he expanded the war, ordering an invasion of Cambodia, Vietnam's neighbor. That spring, I drove across country for, during t for two months. And during that time, Nixon invaded Cambodia. Four students were killed at Kent State. Two were killed at Jackson State. I mean, it was something. As anger over the invasion and killings exploded, the GI movement entered a new era. This was Armed Forces Day, and in many cities across the country, there were the usual parades, displays, and bands. But the recent surge of protest over the war in Indochina cast a shadow over today's activities. This was even true at some military bases where the presence of anti-war demonstrators led to the cancellation of planned observances. A thousand GIs marched the first year right outside the base. And they told people it was off limits, and they told people that if you went there, you were going to get arrested. For the store owners downtown were putting up plywood coverings on their windows because the cops told them it was going to turn into a riot. But then people decided to change it to Armed Forces Day because, you know, we uh, thought making fun of your enemy was as valuable as yelling at him. And in Colleen, we had three demands. We had a pretty extremist slogan. Avenge, avenge the Kent State and Jackson State killings. And so we had end the war. The third slogan, I think, had to do with the political prisoners going because at that time, the Black Panther Party was starting to gain some strength and there was repression against them. The second year, 1971, there had to be three, four thousand out there. approaching collapse with individual units avoiding or having refused combat, murdering their officers and non-commissioned officers, drug-ridden and dispirited were not near mutinous. In the face of a determined enemy, an unprecedented anti-war movement, and a military near collapse, the Nixon administration announced the policy of Vietnamization an effort to shift the burden of combat to the South Vietnamese Army while American jets bombarded North Vietnam from the skies. Nixon promised that American ground troops would no longer be involved in offensive combat. 
This is Richard Boyle, Firebase Pace, about two kilometers from the Cambodian border. I'm sitting in a bunker with about a dozen grunts of the 1st Cav Division. A lot of the people are kind of wondering if anybody back in the world knows that we're out here. You know, like uh, they say that only two batteries of artillery are supposed to be here and no grunts are here. You know, like nobody, we don't even exist. We're just meat. American troops were not supposed to be in combat. That's why the American Army denied that they were there. You know, as far as the American, as the briefers as I got, there were no American troops along the border. Does anybody know what we're fighting for? Do we be fighting for democracy here? Actually, I tell you, the only thing you fighting for is your own life. You fighting to go back home. The North Vietnamese were had they had two regiments, two crack regiments, totally surrounding the fire banks. And it's plain suicide going out there in the middle of the night. You know, that's the thing about giving an order and there's the thing about using your head, too. Right? It's always the higher hires, man. They don't have to go out there. They just send us out there. As soon as we start going out there, we'll be sitting ducks. The, the Captain Cronin ordered six men to go out on a night ambush, which was basically a suicide mission. I mean, he sent six guys out against the two regiments. And, and they said, we ain't going to do it. We ain't going to go. And the only option it was was to get word out the outside world and they wrote a petition at the writing we are under siege in firebase pace we are faced daily with the decision of whether to take a court-martial or participate in offensive role in the event of mass prosecution of our unit our only hope would be public opinion and your voice Nixon was so afraid boy he ordered that company pulled out they sent in another company. They had heard about the, the refusal of Alpha Company. The other company also refused to fight. And after that, no company, no troops in Vietnam were willing to fight. They said, look, we're not going to fight anymore. There are more problems to winding down the Vietnam War than just holding the enemy at bay and moving South Vietnamese troops into the line. One unforeseen problem is trying to keep up the morale of GIs who know they're going home, but not soon enough. It has produced flagrant insubordination, shooting of officers by their own men, and a deadly practice called fragging. The purpose in my mind was either to get me or uh, intimidate myself and all others in authority in the company in the battalion. Sergeant Gene Tingley is saying that some of his own men tried to maim or kill him. But it's not an isolated incident. Since then, one officer has been killed, another wounded at this base, and there have been dozens of similar incidents all across South Vietnam. I've uh, seen more than one uh, big group meeting where uh, actually all they talk about is uh, fragging, as we call them, pigs. By pigs, you're talking about your senior enlisted men and your officers? Uh, that's correct. That's uh, one of our most common terms. Because the fragmentation grenade is often the weapon used, the violent attacks on authority have come to be known as fragging, and many GIs talk openly about fragging and the military countermeasures. A fragmentation grenade was thrown into the quarters of some officers. Two killed. Two killed? Was that it? Okay. Billy, I think was almost immediately placed under arrest. Things just developed from there. I was chosen for the trial because I was an outspoken critic of the war. He would speak his piece. You know, if I don't like something, I'm going to tell you about it. This war wasn't meant for me. It wasn't meant for us. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, black men, because we are not y'all slaves. And he would let them know that, he, you know, I don't cater to everything you say. And they had some vendetta against him for speaking his mind. The irony of why he got selected for prosecution could almost say a comedy of errors. His commanding officer decided that he must have been the target because he was planning to send Billy home. Now, to us, I mean, that was absolutely absurd. If Billy thought he was being sent home, he would have swam home. None of the original evidence pointed to Billy at all. Eyewitness descriptions did not match Billy, and as it turned out later, he was often someplace getting high. The case was really a milestone in many ways because it's the case that surfaced the issue of fragging. The message did get out, you know, among the soldiers what was going on and how we needed their support. In our wildest dream, we never would have realized people cared that much about the movement and what was going on. A lot of Vietnam veterans came to the trial and, and were there to show support. It crystallized a lot of issues, and, you know, racism not least. We are saying that the system of military justice is still riddled with injustice. Prosecution witness confesses army made him lie. I mean, that would happen all through the trial. The whole thing was just bizarre from start to finish, and of course, before it was over, the army would try to manufacture evidence with these uh, grenade pens that they said that they couldn't match, and it turned Which out that it was impossible. There was no such science at all. No matter how hard they tried, the case just wouldn't hold together. It is clear that the army had no evidence of my guilt. Front page, Private Smith acquitted of fragging charges. Smiling, Billy Dean Smith was acquitted today. When the verdict was read, I mean, it was like she said, pandemonium, everybody just, the camera and everything, then we pile out the door. Uh, it, it, was, it was one of the best days of my life. I was simply singled out as a scapegoat for 600 fragments which had occurred in the last four years in Vietnam and which reflects a low state of morality among this man. Billy was, my impression of him anyway, was he was a gentle person. He was drafted and in a matter of months was in the killing field. That in itself was a trauma. Then once he was arrested for this crime that he didn't commit, they put him in isolation. 22 months, and he was only out one hour a day out of 24 solitary. You sitting yeah. up there that long, you're going to automatically go crazy looking at yourself and your hands and your fingers and toes, and that's it. And he got back to the United States, but his health has been destroyed. His mind has been destroyed. Periodic. Billy Dean Smith was in solitary confinement. The House Internal Security Committee of the United States Congress held a series of hearings on the GI movement. The congressmen declared there was no movement, only a handful of what they called militant extremists of the far left. But the hearings, spanning nine months, produced thousands of pages of testimony illustrating how broadly and deeply the GI movement had spread. Many of us are very convinced Nixon had to go to an air war because he couldn't trust us on the ground. And for good reason. We were shooting as officers and refusing um, direct orders to go into combat where we could. And he had to go to an air war where there is no relationship. It's totally impersonal. 
you know, the pilots fly from Guam, you know, a thousand miles away. They drop, you know, several tons or how many tons of bombs. They fly back again. They don't see the damage. There's no relationship to what they do, their job, to people's lives. I still wanted to fly. I was getting the impression that the war was wrong. I was going to be part of it. I wasn't going to be carrying a gun. I wasn't going to be physically shooting these people. It was rationalization on my part. But I still wanted to fly. I still wanted to have that that experience. During basic training, I got the opportunity of half a day off of training if I took a language test. So I took the language test, and little did I know that was that was the end of that story. I was taught Vietnamese, taught radio intercept, and went immediately to Southeast Asia. Bomb damage assessments. We would be given advance notification of where airstrikes were going to take place at. Part of our job was to monitor the actual North Vietnamese assessment of the damage of that airstrike. Primarily what we had there was really sophisticated electronic eavesdropping devices so we could eavesdrop on communications that were taking place between Vietnamese units and their commands. We would receive information which was then analyzed and that became intelligence and then that was picked through and become product for the Joint Chiefs of Staff President. One of the main things about me that changed my mind was that I knew what was happening in country was not what was being told to the people of the United States. civilian areas, the bombing of hospitals, things that the U.S. denied over and over and over again that we were engaged in. Those are things that we were engaged in, and we had access to that information, and the lies were so stark. You know, it challenged your own dignity. It challenged your own loyalty. It challenged your own humanity. Given the very job that we did, which was listen to the Vietnamese, is that we were allowed to enter their minds, and we were allowed to enter their hearts, their feelings. People began to develop relationships, mental relationships with the people that they were listening to every day. That was a real conscientious contention there also, a dichotomy, and that if we did our job right, we would save the lives of Americans. If we did our job right, we would cost the lives of tens of thousands of Vietnamese. And so it put us into that position where we had to, uh, there was no way we could win. I had to do something, you know, and that's the point of what that is. We did something. We had to do something. We went to VVAW. We went to uh, as many groups as we could find and tell them what we were going to do. We were basically going to go back to NKP and do what we could to stop the war. And I think that we made the decision on that leave that we were going to do the paper. You know, we were going to do as much as we could during this last year of our service to stop what was going on. Yeah, we, we did everything that we could legally to uh, to get their goat. And that's how kind of the ones got started and we began to have parties. And then they started talking about, well, what is the lowest thing on the earth? 
and somebody said worms when there was the acronym worms which stands for we openly resist military stupidity we don't write worms eye view to convince we write worms eye view to communicate we don't need money we need each other we openly resist military stupidity and we openly love each other we had a big party one night i remember we had taken an effigy of our commanding officer after we burned our commanding officer in effigy I looked around and there was a large group of people on the perimeter that had circled us. And it was the uh, security police. And uh, they were starting to close in on us. And they had dogs. And they had dogs, <laughs> right. They had dogs. And uh, once they got close enough to figure out what we were doing, they joined us. They joined us. With the air assault coming mainly from aircraft carriers, sailors and airmen became the center of the GI movement. On the USS Coral Sea, 1,200 signed a petition demanding their ships stay home. And San Diego, California, home of the carriers Constellation and Kitty Hawk, spawned a movement led by a group of Navy officers and enlisted men. We truly believed what would stop that war was when the soldiers stopped fighting it. I'm still an active officer, as were all these other guys and sailors and enlisted people. As we sat around and brainstormed about what kind of a nonviolent action can we take that can actually touch sailors? So we looked around and we saw the aircraft carrier. It's the biggest ship in San Diego Harbor. It's the most impressive symbol of American power. It's hard for people to realize this, but that ship is not a naval ship anymore. It's really part of the air power that we use to attack peasants. It's, a, it's the weapon of a bully. It's a weapon of aggression. original concept came, well, let's do something where we allow the people on board that ship to, to cast a ballot as to whether or not they think they should go back to Vietnam. Let's just hear their voice. And then we said, no, this election should be held in every shopping center in San Diego County. And every Safeway store ought to have a little polling booth outside, and we ought to see how many ballots we can collect, and we're going to point toward a day. Heck, I was a carrier qualified aviator, and that gave me a lot of credibility with people, earned or not earned. And even though I hadn't been in combat, uh, people would give you a certain amount of credence, of course, because I knew a whole lot about how the military functioned. Hey. I used to be a lieutenant in the Navy, USN. And I've flown. No, I'm not kidding. You. In fact, I can prove it to you. I'm a retired master sergeant from the Air Force. Yeah. My, uh, my only question is, why do you people have to look so weird like this one here? Uh, can't you just look normal like everybody else? Can I look normal? There's nobody from the captain of that ship to the mayor of the city right. who did not hold a press conference about this project. Everybody was commenting on it. U.S. senators were commenting on it. Yeah. You know, even if the city votes to, for that ship to stay, we're still going. Well, I guess so. <laughs> the captain of the ship says, well, I know there's a lot of people on the ship who don't want to go, but the military is full of malcontents, he said. <laughs> that was at hand quickly disappeared after the, the re-election. And of course, 
given the vantage point of everybody working in, a, in an NSA unit, you know, we knew what was coming up. A decision by the President of the United States and by Henry Kissinger to bomb North Vietnam back into the Stone Age as their last message to the Vietnamese before we withdrew entirely. I think everybody that was involved in our operations uh, was faced with the stark reality of participating in something which bordered on, on what we considered to be criminal, genocidal, unprecedented. So we felt very much in solidarity with other GIs who were refusing to participate, particularly people refusing to fly B-52s over the north. People stopped producing the intelligence product that we were supposed to be producing by monitoring North Vietnamese communications. When you're not interpreting what you're hearing and you're not passing along the intelligence that you're receiving, the people who are supposed to be getting the information don't get any information. The Air Force was no longer a reliable instrument, okay, for carrying out the war. The Vietnam War ended on April 30th, 1975 as North Vietnamese and National Liberation Front troops entered Saigon. And even as the last remaining Americans were returning home, the memory and reality of the GI anti-war movement was being rewritten. Yeah, they love everybody back there. Cats, dogs, niggers, spicks. And they're real fond of looking good back home. Y'all can believe that. The typical uh, story of, of a spat upon vet is his arriving at the San Francisco airport and uh, where he's met by demonstrators. And he says, the first thing that happened when I got off the plane in San Francisco, a girl in love beads and a headband spat in my face and called me a baby killer. That version of the story has been told over and over and over again. Being a Vietnam vet and having come home and worked with the anti-war movement, these just didn't resonate as true to me. So I began to be, get interested in then where did these stories come from and how long had they been around? Who had begun telling them? I went back to the point in time, the late 60s, early 1970s, to see whether there's any reports in newspaper stories that uh, activists were spitting on, on Vietnam vets. No, I didn't find anything. I looked at some National Lawyers Guild uh, observation projects of demonstrations to see whether there's anything in their archives about this. No, nothing there. Were any Vietnam vets claiming that they were being spat on? You know, were any pro-war people then claiming that Vietnam vets were being spat on? No. So I thought, well, now this is getting this is getting really interesting. I was telling a, a friend of mine who's a, who's a psychologist, she also teaches in women's studies, and I was telling her that I was working on a book about Vietnam vets having been spat on. And she said, well, that's really interesting. She said, who supposedly had done the spitting? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, the demographics of the spitters. And I said, well, you know, young, young women, protesters, you know, hippies. And she broke out in this big smile. She says, got to be a myth, huh? And, and I knew what was coming next. I knew what she was going to say <laughs> next, which is that girls don't spit. Now, whether girls spit or not, 
Um, I've had some other conversations about that, but it seems pretty unlikely that these spitting incidents occurred. A lot of these stories, uh, again, begin with, well, we arrived at the San Francisco airport. No, you didn't arrive at the San Francisco airport. <laughs> Nobody did. You maybe arrived at Travis Air Base near San Francisco, and then you were you you were discharged or you were processed out, and then you and you went to the San Francisco airport. You know that's possible, but but that's not the way the stories are told. Uh, there, you know, we were met on the tarmac at <laughs> at San Francisco airport. Too many guys that got off at the San Francisco airport. Somebody's making something something up here and and certainly if it was at um if it was at uh, military uh you know air force bases uh, there couldn't have been couldn't have been protesters on the base much much less on the tarmac or or at you know at, at gateside uh, to meet people there are stories uh, many stories of wounded vietnam vets being being un unloaded people on stretchers being carried from the plane and, and they are spat on by protesters who are, you know, who are lining the walkway. Some of those stories just really defy common sense. Uh, but, but these stories are picked up. They're picked up and they're, and they're used, they're used, they're used very authoritatively. And I come back to the world and I see all those maggots at the airport protesting me, spitting, calling me baby killer and all kinds of vile crap. Who are they to protest me, huh? If you went back and looked at the front pages of newspapers in 1969, 1970, you know, what were you going to see on the front pages of newspapers about Vietnam vets? They're in the streets. They're political activists. Uh, they're on the Capitol Hall. They're giving the Nixon administration fits. This was stuff that, that was in living rooms all over America. So people knew this, and this is an important piece for talking about how memory about the war has been rewritten, has been reconstructed. This is gone. This has been erased. This has been displaced. You mentioned the war in Vietnam to a lot of people, and, and they'll say, yeah, and what happened to those guys when they came home was sure a shame. Uh, you ask them about um, any of the major events of the war, and it's like people have no, people have no clue. In the spring of 1971, the FTA show toured Asia. Despite being banned from military bases worldwide, the show performed in Japan, Okinawa, and the Philippines for over 60,000 soldiers. And at every stop, GIs took the stage with them. We can no longer remain silent about the atrocities and injustice being perpetrated by the United States military on peoples of other nations, nor the petty harassment that servicemen and women are made to endure day after day. We demand an end to all discriminating policies against persons because of their race. We demand an end to all discrimination against persons, such as anti-war GIs, because they do not agree with U.S. policies. We demand an immediate, immediate and total withdrawal of all air and ground troops and CIA from Vietnam, as well as from Korea, Guam, Okinawa, Japan, the Philippines, Israel, Cambodia, Thailand, Germany, England, Panama, Guantanamo Bay. I mean, it seems unthinkable now that we could have done this. 
and that you could have a hall full of guys with their fists in the air, so happy that we had come to acknowledge the reality. I read that you took a stand and refused to kill in Vietnam. You said no man was your enemy. What he's fighting for is to be free. I used to love to watch the faces of the GIs when she sang that. It was like this shell of tension would drop away and you would see the youth and the innocence and the vulnerability underneath. But soldier, we love you. Yes, soldier, we love you. Standing strong, cause it's hard to do. What do you know you must do? Cause it's true. Yes, it's true. They locked you up in their stockades. Yeah, they locked you up cause they're afraid that you would rap and spread the word. But you can't jail truth, it will be heard. Oh, ain't it hard to smile sometimes? In April of 1971, just five years after Howard Levy and Donald Duncan's lone acts of protest, thousands of Vietnam veterans against the war converged on Washington, D.C. and threw their medals onto the Capitol steps. We don't want to fight anymore, but if we have to fight again, it'll be to take these steps. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a unique opportunity. It's very, it's very rare, I think, in, in anybody's life that you have an opportunity to really think that you are changing history that you're a part of history. I mean, you know, the reality is, at first they couldn't believe GIs were protesting the war. That, that, that blew their minds. When we had a thousand GIs in 1970, they thought, they, they didn't know how to react to that because they thought, yeah, well, a bunch of them, they go down there and they're probably all just talking, but how many of them are there? They tried to turn me into a killer. They tried to turn me into somebody who would take another life. If there's one thing in my life I feel like that I've accomplished, is that I, I didn't allow that to happen. I really learned so much. You know, just spending day after day after day, you know, just people talking about, you know, what's it all about and how we're gonna deal with this stuff and how we're we really gonna move it forward and change the world. That's what everybody wanted to do, of course. We wanted to change the world. We were pretty sure this sucked. You know, we were pretty sure none of us deserved to be here and so that didn't leave much room but to change the world. You know, people said, well, you keep going back. Why are you going back to Vietnam? keep going back to Vietnam because I'll tell you what the other side does they're always going back and they have to go back the Hawks you know the patriarchs they have to go back because and they have to revise the going back because they can't allow us to know what the what the back there really was and then you think about this shit man and then you say god damn did I do that? Did I actually live in that shit? Did this government push me into this shit? What's the what's the pride in saying you're a veteran if you're what you're a veteran is, is something wrong? It's like uh, being a, a, a veteran of the massacre at some place or another, you know. It, uh, 
there's no pride to that. And so don't talk about it. Go away. Don't talk about it. So it's amazing to me that as many as many GIs that were actually in Vietnam, actually there, uh, then spoke out against it and demonstrated against it after they came back. I, I just thought that was amazing. That there was that if there had been a hundred, I would have been amazed. That there was thousands is just incredible. Incredible. Brave people. Standing strong, yes, it's hard to do what you know you must do, cause it's true. Yes, it's true. We love you. I'll be